but he knows that what the cost of Rome is. And he shows Rome to be the greatest thing that, that man could ever create on his own with the help of the gods. Chapter after chapter after chapter shows the, the cost of what it means to found the city. And it's, it's troubling, it's, um, it's sorrowful. It's, you, you can't go on with Virgil and not know the cost of it. He loses his father, his wife, um, his shipmates, Palinurus, the palace of his ship. He loses his nursemaid. Okay. Every one of those things is set against Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the battles. You remember that Odysseus will lose none of those. He has his son, he has his father, he has a nursemaid, Euryclea. The cost of Rome involves giving all of that up. And what Ascanius does in the Aeneid goes way past anything Telemachus does in the Odyssey. So he shows the extraordinary efforts at self-sacrifice that go into the making of this city. He knows that. And he also knows it's not enough. Just not close. That this is the very greatest thing that man can do but it's not enough. It's pointing to something else. So the founding of the city has been one of the great themes of our work together. Athens and Rome. In Aeschylus, Aeschylus is going to take up the founding of Athens. It, that's his theme. It's, it's going to be so for Sophocles. So just as we did in the Iliad, we're going to go back to foundings. We're going to go back to the what it is that's behind Western civilization that sets Western civilization apart from any other civilization in the world. You remember that the reason the Iliad was so great is because it deals with this fundamental difference between East and West. The Trojan War is not just another war. It's a war about two civilizations, and there's something wrong, and it's answered um, in favor of the West. Something is going on in the West that wasn't going on anywhere else in the world. Um, Homer knew it, Aeschylus knew it, Sophocles knew it, the great poets have known it. So in going back to Aeschylus and the Oresteia, we're going back to foundings, um, to the founding of Athens. So it's going to take three plays. I'd like to do the three of them in three weeks, one a week. They're not long, they're very, very short. Um, you'll have no trouble reading them, they're, they really are short. We'll do the Oresteia. One of the things I'd like you to keep on your mind is this, when you read it. It's the reason I'm talking about the city. One of the issues that underlies this action, the founding of the city, um, Agamemnon's going to come back from the war, and he's going to be treacherously killed. That's what's at issue. And his son, Orestes, is going to have to take vengeance on his father's death. I'm not going to go into it. I want to leave it open to you. But... Um, but if you remember the Odyssey, if you remember Hamlet, there's almost not a play that we've read dealing with a son that doesn't in some way talk about the hardships that he will face as a son um, of trying to support his father, to, 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 vent, to have the courage to avenge something his father did. So every one of the, and so keep in mind behind this, the sun coming down to become Christ, um, Abraham being asked to kill his son, that father-son relationship, because that's cent central to the Oresteia. But the other thing I want you to keep in mind is this, 
the myth that underlies this action, this coming into being of Athens, has to do with meals, meals involving the gods and humans. And what we're going to see is the gods eating humans and humans eating humans. So in an amazing way, it's going to touch on the, on the Eucharist. Um, it's, it's not going to go there the way we would go there. But it's amazing to me that at the very founding of Western civilization was this notion that there's some blasphemy eating um, um, that involves a large disorder. And if that, if that doesn't mean enough to you, just let me quickly remind you. You remember that in the Odyssey, um, all of the, all of the uh, companions of Odysseus die over a matter of eating. They were told not to eat the cattle because the cattle knew no generation. They weren't of the earth. Um, there's a blasphemy involved in eating. And in the Aeneid, when Aeneas and Ascanius and the Trojans finally get to Italy, the, the sign that they're there is related to eating. They sit down and eat their tables. So eating is at the center of the Odyssey. It's at the center of um, the Aeneid. And it's a nothing act, eating food. What's, what's the big deal? You know, we're eating food. So in the Oristia, it is a big deal. We're going to see these blasphemies involving the gods and humans where they're eating humans and sacrifices. and So there's some curious things going on in Aeschylus behind the founding. And so we'll take um, three weeks. We'll do a play a week. The first play is the Agamemnon. The second play is um, the, or, or the, uh, um, the, what's the god, holy cow. The libation bears, um, and the third play is the Eumenides, the holy ones, the blessed ones. They're very short, they're very short, but they're profound. So we'll do Aeschylus, and then we will do Sophocles, Oedipus Rex. Probably all of you know that it's a short play. But we're going to read a play probably most of you have never read, which is um, Sophocles' completion of his trilogy, the, Oedip the uh, Oedipus Rex trilogy. Oedipus at Clonus. No, Antigone. We're not going to do Antigone. Um, we're going to look at Oedipus. So Oedipus blinded, blinds himself in punishment for what he did. And then Oedipus at Clonus, when he travels, this is crucial, he travels to Athens, away from Thebes, the violent city, and something will happen at Athens that will once again show that there's something extraordinary going on in this city. Um, so the two cities that you know have been principal in the in the uh, ancient world, Athens and Rome, have been a focus of what we're doing. You, if you read the Aeneid, you, you can't come out of it realizing that there's Rome's just not another city. The cities are just not another, you know, just another city. And um, for those of you who've been doing this for a while, if you just cast your man back to um, Chaucer, you remember that the opening tale of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales was the Knight's Tale. The focus of that play, or that story, was Theseus founding Athens. He had just defeated the Thebans, the noble city, and the Amazons. He's the founder of Western civilization. 
Um, so there's something extraordinary in the the human city, the the efforts that we make to pull a community together. There's something extraordinary in what we're doing, but there's something dark too. So we'll read Aeschylus and we'll do Sophocles. Um, they both have to do with Thebes, this heroic noble city that is potentially full of violence. It's the same thing we saw with Chaucer, but Athens, that something is going on to set Athens apart from all other cities. So we'll do Aeschylus and Sophocles and then, um, and then we'll go to Shakespeare and some other things. So um, are you all okay with that? Is that? Since I've not heard any no's from any of you, I'm assuming we'll go ahead for a while. Um, I'm, I'm not seeing anybody beat each other up yet because we're getting tired of each other. But. So next week we'll continue with what we're doing and, and then in uh, two weeks we'll start East Coast. Here's the, um, there's a number of, um, there's a number of additions for Aeschylus, okay? There's two, probably the two most important are the, um, the Penguin edition by Fagels. See if I can do that. This one is probably the most academically popular because Fagel's writing is, is pretty impressive. But it's not the one I prefer because I think his writing, he's such a gifted writer, but I, um, I think his, it, his writing is really powerful. Um, so it's a good addition. The one that I would prefer is by Rach Richmond Lattimore. He's the one who did the Iliad. And it's a, it's a, sorry, it's a different edition. Um, it's the University of Chicago Press. It's much simpler, and it's got a nice introduction on the trilogy. So the one, the one that I'm going to work out of is the Lattimore tradition. But, um, so I would encourage you to get that, but, but, you know, I'm not sure what's available these days. And the, the uh, Sophocles trilogy, the Oedipus Rex and Oedipus Clonus, is in the um, Robert Fitzgerald um, edition. It's a harvest book. So for Sophocles, Robert Fitzgerald, it's a harvest. Um, Hargort Brace, a harvest. HBGA, Harvest. Harcourt Brace Janovitz Publishers. Those are the ones that I'll be using. <clears throat> but I think, you know, I think, um, <clears throat> so I would urge you to get those. If they're not available, get what you can and work with whatever you can. So long as you know the Bob? story. Bob? Yeah. Would you mind just emailing that to us? Sure. I'll do, I'll do, yeah, glad to. I'll do that So tonight. we can make sure we get the right one. Yep. Glad to, Fred. Thanks for... I tried to write it down, but I'm not sure we got it straight. No, I'm glad you said it. I'm I'm glad somebody's glad somebody's keeping watching watching over me. Um, so thanks for that. Anyway, that's what we'll do. Um, some people have offered to make donations. You have my address. I don't want to make it available online because um, we may have people to join us. You know, I just don't know. So. Um, we're grateful for your donations. I think, I think that's it. Um, 
I'm going to I'm going to mention a couple of the the topics that that I'd like to focus on tonight. But I'm glad um, for any of you to jump in and offer any others. Okay, I've got three on my mind. Um, if you didn't have time to read what I sent you out today, you really should read it. I think Fred's and Francis's um, framings of concerns. I, you, I, you, I've already told you. I think they're excellent, and I'm really grateful for the fact that they did that, and, and even more for suggesting we do this because I think it's a really good thing to do. Um, I've included some others, so what I'd like to do is spend our time tonight looking at them. I think, I think, I'm looking for Doc, but she's not here. Is there anything I'm leaving out, Doc? I think that's it. Um, I think that's it. I feel like I'm leaving something out. Um, a couple of things on the blog. I'm, I'm reorganizing it. I've got to get together with the mic. I'm going to put a section up. If you've gone to the blog, I'm assuming all of you have, you know that things are, are um, put in roughly chronological order. There are some things currently that are out of order, and I want to straighten that out. But I'm going to include, I've already included a section for poetry, because ordinarily the lyric poems get lost in readings or our work on individual writers. I'm going to take some time and just do a reading of, you know, maybe 20 poems. I, I don't know what it'll be. Just to have some of our lyrics online. So I'm going to post it. I've already started it. I haven't included any readings yet, but I'm going to do some readings on some of the major poems. Hopkins, Shakespeare, you know, um, Schnackenberg, others that I just think are particularly good. So that people coming on site can hear readings of the poem. So readings of the poem with with either no commentary or brief commentary. So that'll be put on our blog. Um, and then at the very end of the blog, I'm going to put on an overview um, option so that you guys or anybody coming on can go to the overview because I think what we're doing is valuable. It doesn't take on, it's not limited to specific works. It 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 takes an overview approach to all that we're doing through individual works. So I, I think it's it's important and I'll and I'll get that up. So I think that's it. Anything? Okay. Um then let's um any questions or I'd um I'll start with a prayer and then I'd like to read a few lines from Auden's poem, the one we started a couple of weeks ago and then haven't moved ahead with, but I'd like to move through it. Um, you've got it on the blog. It's, um, it, I can't remember where it was, Hemingway or Billy Budd, but it's one of them. But um, any, any questions or concerns before we start? Nikki, you look like a student with desks all around you and books all open and got it. I mean, you and your son must live in that area, or maybe your husband, I don't know. but it, you. No, this is just my office. Oh, is so, it? Yeah. You look like such a scholar there with all, you know, your desk no, and book. Just a disorganized mess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bob, just a Bob, question. Yeah. I, does, it, does it make any sense at all to take like 60 seconds and just kind of explain sort of the driving force behind this exercise, you know, looking back over the all of the literature that we've done over the last, I don't know, how many years has it been now? Four or five? I yeah. Forget. No. But just the thought that, and I, and, and I think we talked about this in one of your classes where one of the writers said, it's hard for me to read a, a book and oh, think about oh. all the books that came before it. Yeah. And it's kind of in that context that, you know, the, the discussion began in the sense that if we go back and look at all the great literature that we read, are there some themes that seem to come out across that yep. stretch of, of literature and all we were trying to do was just you know sort of touch touch base with all of our fellow classmates and say do you see some of the same things that we see and you know what do we what do we gain from that that was kind of what the whole yeah process was Fred I'm not sure I'm not sure that I can add any let me um, let me say a prayer because I want to get us going, and I'll and I'll respond to that um, as briefly as I can. And I think that what I'm going to do when I do that is throw it back to you to add, you know, whatever else is on your mind. But I'll, but I, I got your email, and I do want to respond to it. So I'll take a second when we start. Um, would you remind me to do the summary of the pagans before we, if I forget? I just yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Carl, yeah, you, Carl, you had something to say. Go ahead. Yeah, um, you know, we missed last week, and Jeannie and I attempted to find the audio for it, and we could not find it posted. It was the week before that, about the 12th, that was on, but not last week's. Is it in a different place now? No, Carl, it's, um, I, I just, it's been a busy week, and with some confusions with the blog, um, we had to make some changes in ordering, but um, we'll get it up right away. It, it's just... Yeah, okay. Doc just okay. said it. Yeah, no, it's it's. I've gone over the blog and I've realized we've got to make some changes. And Mike is the one who knows how to do this, so I'm waiting on him, and he's he's really busy. Okay. So no, it's us. Um, we will get it on right away. We've got some confusion, or I want to straighten out some things on what we're doing there, but we'll get it up. It's not you. It's us. It's us. Okay, um, bless your souls, bless your souls that you are here, that we are together. Um, let's say a prayer. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, what to say, God, for our life from you, for the gift of yourself at the Mass this morning, for your words to us always. Amazing that the link between what we're doing here and our faith. We go to Mass and hear readings, words spoken to us. Words are teachers. Words are teachers to action. They, they're prompters. They move us in the direction of action. So taking your words seriously is something important to us. Um, we're grateful for your words. You help us to see a lot that we wouldn't see on our own. That's why we have the prophets. That's why you use them. That's why you ask them to do what they've done. They've done. Strengthen us in our efforts to hear you, to um, to be obedient, to give our obedience to you, to take seriously, particularly with respect to our weaknesses, 
those faults and sins we each carry. Um, forgive us our sins, pardon please, help us to get better. Um, maybe more than anything, help us not to despair to, um, um, of ourselves, our world. There's so much disorder going on today. Um, you've asked us to live your love. There's no way we can do that without actively opposing the violence in our world. It's in our streets, it's visible and invisible, it's in our neighborhoods. Give us courage to step out into our neighborhoods um, to bring you actively um, to offer you um, where people are not going to want to hear you. Um, we've got a, a nominee for the Supreme Court who's going to be trashed because she's a woman of faith, because she's Catholic. Um, I ask a special prayer for her, surround her with protection. She will need it. She will be mobbed. People are already threatening her. Help her to go through this. Um, strengthen her with her mind, the arguments that she gives with her heart. Um, let this woman be a testimony to your law here in our world. And help us to give our support to all that's going on in the little ways we do it in our own communities. Help us to do this. Um, with respect to our own work that we do together here, help us to be open to this literature, to um, to take what we learn and live it, genuinely live it, so that what we are learning is becoming active in our own lives. What we say, what we don't say, what we do, what we don't do. Help us, please. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, just a, a few passages from Auden's poem. You remember, this is a poem called Horae Canonicae, Emolitas um, Vicerit. It's uh, the canonical hours that Christ was victorious in his death. That's the title of the poem, and what he does is structure his poem according to the um, hours of the monastic life. Prime, terse, you know, all the way through the day to the end of the day, Compline. And so, whatever's going on in this poem, we're meant to, like so many of the things that we've been reading, it, it goes to what Fred was saying. I'm so glad. There are times, Fred, when I'm actually grateful for you. <laughs> <laughs> I should give you a mic to have equal time on that one. <laughs> um, that that time is overlaid. You know that he's he's setting this poem before us in a way that makes it impossible for us to read it without an awareness, without carrying with us the prayers of those hours through the day. Okay, so like. So many of the works that we've been reading, we just can't read it on the surface. We have to see that there are other texts, other realities, outside the boundaries of this poem that are included in it, and we have to pull them together. That's one of the things poetry has been giving us. It's teaching us to be better readers, to see that the meaning of things is just not on the surface, that there are simultaneous orders coexisting, across time, across time, in the present. It's like for a moment we step into God's time, it's now, it is, there's no past, 
um, no future, it is. And we're asked to read that way. <clears throat> and Auden is consciously doing that um, in this poem, by the way it's structured and, um, and it's titled and everything else. Remember when we first began in the prime, um, he described himself as waking up and becoming aware that in this waking moment, of this moment when he leaves his sleep and the unconscious, this world of dreams, he stepped into a world that's a, it's a little bit like Adam in the garden. There's a sense of innocence. But he knows that the minute he begins to act, he's going to fall into his sins. Somebody will be injured. There will be a scapegoat. Whatever he will do will affect other people. So even though the poem is presented at you know, this innocent surface, by the way he structured it and what he's doing, we know that there are these deeper meanings. Okay? And in the prime, um, he's describing that moment when he wakes up from sleep. He, and it's interesting. Remember, those of you who've read the Odyssey and the uh, Aeneid, you know the the coming through the gates of ivory and horn. Those are the gates through which Aeneas entered the world. He comes back to reality. So he's describing that moment when he awakens from sleep, leaves that uncon the underworld, where everything's violent and dark the unconscious. These, these poets know so much more than Freud ever did, ever did. He leaves that world and enters the day knowing that in some way um, he will um, enter the fall and reenact Adam's sin. That something he does will affect others. Okay, So I'll pick up with the terse, the second section. The beauty, part of the beauty of this poem, remember, is that he's, his, I, I'm just, I'm amazed at what Auden does with his language. He doesn't speak like an Oxford or Cambridge graduate. He, he speaks like an ordinary American, very casual, offhand, nothing's going on. It's an ordinary man's language. So it's very colloquial, very familiar, very ordinary. But what he's dealing with is in very ordinary, but he's showing us a deeper meaning to it. So... Terse, the third hour of the day, usually nine o'clock in the morning. That's when um, the monks met for mid-morning mid, mid prayers. After shaking paws with his dog, whose bark would tell the world that he's always kind, the hangman, <laughs> he's being kind to his dog, the hangman sets off briskly over the heath. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice with Gently closing the door of his wife's bedroom, today she has one of her headaches. With a sigh, the judge descends his marble stair. He does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. And the poet, taking a breather round his garden before starting his ecologue, does not know whose truth he will tell. So immediately we're in a world of contrast. Here's this guy setting off, petting his dog, everything's since is innocent, but it's the hangman, the judge, um, who are going off to do the best they can, but something's going to be missing. And even the poet um, may not be able to get to the truth of something, um, and knowing that what he says may um, not be kind to somebody. Sprites of um, hearth and storeroom, godlings of professional missionaries, the big ones who can annihilate a city 
cannot be bothered with this moment we are left, each to a secret cult. Now each of us prays to an image of his image of himself. I'm not going to read all the poems, I mean all the lines I'm not going to read, but the, um, that most people go through the day as if there's just another day. They're going to do what they do every day without getting close to seeing the crimes they commit. And behind it is this, each to his secret cult, now each of us prays to an image of his image of himself. <laughs> God, whatever we do, we're going to do it with a sense of who we are and not knowing um, how unreal that image is that we have of ourselves. This is taken from Plato's cave. You know, the appearances, we judge by appearances, and in the, at the center of our self-consciousness is that image we have of ourselves when it's an image of an image. We're living in illusions without fully realizing how much we're trapped by them. Um, um, let something exciting happen this day. Let me find a lucky coin on the sidewalk. Let me hear a new funny story. At this hour, we all might be anyone. It is only our victim who is without a wish, who knows already that is what we can never forgive. If he knows the answers, then why are we here? Why is there even dust? Knows already that in fact our prayers are heard, that not one of us will slip up, that the machinery of our world will function without a hitch, that today for once there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Chthonian mutter, mutters of unrest, but no other miracle, no, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. I hope everybody hears the irony. The, those are, all those lines are inviting irony. Every day we go out to do the best we can. We think we're going to do these great things, but we, we're, it's Plato's cave. We're going through the motions without realizing that there's something we don't see about what we're doing. And most people will treat this day like any other day when, according to the poet, the day we're in is Good Friday. So the, the irony is even more biting because you know in Good Friday that's the day when Christ goes to the cross and asks us to do the same um, every day of our lives. Um, so that's our poem. Um, We'll keep up. Thank I want Sorry? I said thank you. That was, the, you know, that brings all the pieces together. <laughs> Hi, Jolie. It's good to hear your voice. I didn't. Um, glad you're here. Glad you're here. Thank you for the compliment. It's, it's the poet. Um, was I going to go, okay, briefly to Fred's question, then I'm going to, um, Fred, add Jump in here, please. Feel free. Um, I'm not sure if this is the. Um, I'm not sure if this is what the line you were talking about in your um, in your note to us and um, in what you just said. But um, but one of the critical principles that T. S. Eliot introduced into criticism in our time, he presented in an essay called um, "Tradition and the Individual Talent." 
So it's a short essay. Look online and you'll get it. Tradition of the Individual Talent. And he's making the case that, and Alan Tate, by the way, who you know is a, a critic I genuinely love, genuinely. Um, Alan Tate made this comment once in one of his pieces. He said um, that the the poet, the poet who reads, I think, the, sorry, the critic who reads Dryden, say for example, 18th, 18th century poet. The poet or the critic who reads Dryan, Dry, Dryan, Dryden. God, sorry, it's just going. It's getting worse and worse. The critic who reads. Dryden, without a sense of Homer in his blood, doesn't understand Dryden. It's, it's going exactly to your point, friend. Because what he's saying is that, um, that each work exists in a tradition, and it's a living tradition. So in some, work, in some ways, each poet is writing with his awareness of that tradition in his blood. So, for example, when Dryden writes on the rape of the lock or Pope, or their, you know, or make allusions to the Bible or the Iliad, because both poets did, they're only showing that they carry that tradition in them, and that tradition informs everything they do. By the way, closest analogy in our reading recently is Veer. It's 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 so clear that the narrator shows that Veer carries that past with him. It's a way that isolates him from other officers. They don't, they don't carry what he carries. They don't see what he sees. That the man who carries that tradition in him is going to see more because reality is going to be multi-layered. Um, so T.S. Eliot introduced this notion into critical language. Um, lots of critics are not going to pay attention to it, but it was profound. He said... <coughs> that every poet writes with all other poets in his bones and that the work that he creates um, goes into forming this whole order this simultaneous order it exists simultaneously I, he doesn't say this, I'm going to say it it's a little bit like approaching God because you know that when you step into that time this has been a, a point I've been pressing forever once you step into that time you're both in that time, in the poem, but you're also in your own home. So you, even if you're reading the Iliad and you think you're taken back to, you know, 2,500 years ago, that reality is becoming real to you now in 20th century America. So we're learning, we're learning to read differently. Eliot's term was this simultaneous order, this simultaneity of works existing and that when we learn to read poetry that way, we learn to see reality differently. That reality becomes much more multi-leveled. And if you if you think about it, the truth of that is profound because, and and it's so contrary to our own way of seeing things in the modern world. Because the modern world wants to do everything it can to get rid of the past, tearing down statues, overthrowing laws, get rid of it. We know from our parents, our grandparents, that none of us exist in isolation. We didn't make ourselves. And even if we were wounded by our past, which happens everywhere, we carry those wounds. We're asked to redeem them as we go. So even if our past is full of wounds, 
Um, they can be graces if we learn to make them that way. That was at the heart of Boethius. It's been a heart, at the heart of what we're doing. So the whole point of what we've been doing together <coughs> actually goes to what Fred's talking about. You could call the you could call the work we've been doing the recovery of a tradition. We're trying to recover this tradition, make it living, to see it as it applies to our faith, how it helps us to understand, to enrich in our faith, make our faith richer. And um, so when, when we take on a work of art, we're just not stepping into that one work of art, we're stepping into tradition. Um, I don't, it's, it, I, you know, it's interesting, and we're in um, Elizabeth Van Seton, we're doing Aeneid, and that very theme is at the heart of the Aeneid. You, you all remember it from our work. You can't read, you cannot read a passage in the Aeneid, not one. You can't read the Aeneid and not be aware how Virgil is carrying um, Homer forward. If anybody picks up the Aeneid and thinks they understand the Aeneid and they've not read the Iliad and the Odyssey, they will never, even and no matter how convinced they are, they understand that work, they will not be. And if anybody picks up the Divine Comedy and reads the Divine Comedy and thinks they understand it and not see the importance of Virgil and the relevance of Homer to Virgil, he will not understand the Divine Comedy. He can, get, he can be a Catholic, he can get as self-righteous as he wants. Here's the truth of the church. <laughs> he can say whatever he wants. There will be levels of meaning he will miss. Because what Dante is doing, he learned from Virgil that when the poet writes, he's carrying the past forward. He's teaching us a new way of reading, that whatever's going on now carries more with it. Do we see it? The poets are the ones who are giving us that kind of knowledge. It's different from any kind of knowledge you'd find it. History makes an effort at it, it can't do it. Science can't, because science is just, it's, it's always moving forward to leave mistakes correcting itself. Poetry is always carrying the past with it. Good poetry. I mean, not all, not all poetry does that, but... Fred, I, I don't know what to offer more than that. I mean, I, I, that, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, what you said is certainly true of what we've been doing. You, you add, any, add anything you want here, Fred, or... Well, I, I, I guess the first thing to add is if no one else in the class wants to go down this pathway, I apologize. <laughs> um, I, I think it just, very simply, it just came down to when, you know, Francis and I look back at all of the discussions we had, starting with the Iliad, all the way through the Old Man and the Sea. You know, it just seems that there are common commonalities that come out from those discussions that we, we've all had together. And our, our question was, well, can we, can we identify those in, in some ways? And, you know, we, the five that we, we came out with in, in, the, in the memo that we sent to everyone was just sort of, from our perspective, the five that seemed to be prevalent through all those great works. And that includes the books, the poems, the short stories, there just seems to be, you know, some themes that are relevant. And the question is, first of all, does anyone else see those, you know, in, you know, in the same light that we do? And then the second one is, well, given given those five things, and I'm sure there are a lot more than those, 
they were just the ones that were most prevalent for us. And the question is, after having gone through all this great literature and all of these discussions, have we learned anything from that process? Something that we can actually take out and utilize um, in, in today's world. And I, I can't think of a time or place that's any better than the one that we're facing right now where if we can find any, uh, you know, any equipment that we can help deal with uh, what's going on in the world today, then, then that would be a great thing. Yeah. Fred, did you did you read the thing I sent out to everybody? The the topic. We did. Did you? Okay. Yes, we did. Here, what I'd like to do is I've been meaning to do this for the last couple of weeks when we started this. What I'd like to do is I'm going to try to briefly um, summarize the a pagan view of the world and and jump very quickly to Dante and then leave it. Then what I'd like to do is just, I'd like to read a couple of the, three of these questions that, um, that I sent you today. There, there's all those that Fred and Francis um, gave us and some others that I included. I'd like to look at three today and then ask all of you to just pick this up so that we can carry it forward next week. Um, and it, it may be important then to, to try to focus on what, what Fred's talking about right now because he's not just talking about the literature. He's going to a, away from literature um, to a riskier place, and it's one I'm glad to go to, genuinely glad to go to. So how do we live this stuff, or what do we do? What effect has it had? I think that's the part of the force of your concern. What, what have we learned? Um, having learned it, um, what can we do with it? Um, and let me try to even be more risky here. Um, um, what do we do with it with our own families, with our spouses, with our children? And then beyond that, since Christ asks us to go out, not just stay in our families, um, um, is there some ways we can take this um, into our larger world where Fred is acknowledging we so badly need it? Um, so I'm glad to, glad, and, and if we need even more the next week, I'm glad to take, I'm glad to take the time. Let me just briefly summarize our pagan past, um, and one of the reasons I want to do this is because I think it's easy for us as Christians, um, to, um, um, um circumvent eclipse, get around the concrete events of our daily lives in view of a faith we hold. So we can go to work, we can send our kids off to school, we're in a concrete situation and it gets easy to overlook what's going on there because we have a faith and we've got to get on with the world. When you know that so much of the literature that we've been reading, that certainly the poetry, is constantly rooting us in the concrete world. It's exactly the world all of us live in, but it's not church. We're not saying rosaries. We're not on our knees saying prayers. I mean, we may be in our hearts. We're in the world. We're dealing with business, work, children, school, money, finances. Um, where's Christ? Are we really living Him? Or have we put religion in a compartment, you know, on weekends or daily Mass, and then um, enter a world in which 
that faith doesn't seem to have a relevant, much relevance to what we're doing. So, the pagans are good in one sense because we, with them we can't take Christ for granted. So one of the values of reading them for me is that they, they always make me aware of, of what they, the ways in which they find Christ um, in a non-Christian world. They find him in nature, or they've got intimations of him in what's going on in nature. And they saw that before Christ came. So there's a value in that. So let me quickly, just very quickly, give a summary of those works because I want to carry it forward for whatever lights they throw on the questions that we're going to look at tonight. Now, can you pull in the blinds? Just close them. Um, so very, very quickly, you know that I've treated the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid as foundation works. Um, they are foundation in the sense that they're revealing something to us about our human nature um, that seems essential for us as human beings to live well on this life. And by well, I don't mean prosperously or comfortably. Um, Socrates died. Christ died. Good people die. We've seen that the cost of living these lives was generally death. So I don't mean, you know, what people mean today to be prosperous, successful, comfortable, material wealth. I mean to be good when the cost of being good is going to be painful. When making hard decisions is going to trouble your life, in your family, in your marriage, and you know, in your work, um, it, it, could, it could create problems. In the Iliad, one of the things we saw is that even though there was a principle involved in the war that, that um, that had to do with the violation of a, a code of hospitality and marriage, because remember Paris took Helen and Helen went with him. Um, even though it, it dealt with a violation of some natural good, honor, marriage, welcoming somebody in your home who betrayed your trust in them, those are very ordinary things. Um, Paris came into Menelaus's home he, and Helen and Paris took off. So a man came into your home, he takes advantage of the hospitality you show him, and, and then you've got a war. So even though there was a principle involved in this, it was something worth fighting for to these men, we know that the war went on for nine years. And one of the questions that it leaves us with is, how important is booty, material wealth? When I was in California, groups of businessmen gathered to read great literature because of what it would teach them as lawyers and businessmen. They went, to, they went to work, they went to lunch on these works. All of them read the Iliad, the Henry, Shakespeare's The Henriad, because they wanted to learn what leaders could learn to help them in their work from reading these things. So, so the Iliad goes to this fundamental problem. Once these men are in a war, it's as if they get stuck there. The passion of killing, of acquiring booty, they get more and more wealthy, they get more caught up in the war, in the ninth and a half year, you know, Achilles breaks from that and steps outside of it. And when he does, he's an isolated man. He, um, he's not with the other men. His own, his own companions, his own family will die. He steps outside of that world. And it, this is my understanding. Um, um, you know that I believe what Homer's saying is, it's only then that 
we learn that there's something other and we're not quite sure what it is but whatever it is makes it possible to see that world everybody's caught up in in a different way and what we learn is that everybody is so caught up with booty that it determines a man's value um, that the thing that that defines men in that world is their possessions, their booty, and you already know them. Women are at the height, possessions, things, and you know that my argument about that is, <laughs> have, have things changed? Um, I, I think the Iliad is probably the greatest critique on modern America that's been written. Um, but at some point the cost of it is grave. Um, you remember Patroclus wants to go back into the war, he wears Achilles' armor, Every, everybody admires that armor because it's the armor of the greatest hero. When he wears it, he's killed. Hector wants that armor more than anything. It's like prizing. If I could only get this part in Hollywood, if I could only get this job and more wealth, if I could only have more power, if I, if I could only be elected to put in this program, um, if I could only get these things out of the way, then I could bring in, you know, whatever they are. Um... Patroclus dies, Hector kills him, he puts on his armor, he dies. When Patroclus dies, Achilles um, realizes that what he did affected other people, and it's the only time in that work that anybody, any man in that world, acknowledges a failing. Because in that world, the measure of everything is individual heroism. Look how good I am, look at what I've achieved, how good I am, how strong I am, how powerful. When he does that and he accepts his death, he goes back into the war, nobody can defeat him. So Homer is aware of the ironies of being too attached to things of the world. It's only when he, Achilles gives up that, admits his faults, that he can do things he could have never done before. So Homer's showing us that, that human dignity doesn't rest on external things, booty, whatever other ideals people have, because Homer um, examines multiple perspectives, you know, in all the battles, the major battles, we see people fighting for different things. They're all lacking in some way. When Achilles go back, goes back into the war, nobody can touch him, and he actually ends up giving away his booty at the end to um, Priam, and then goes back into the war. So one of the essential things that he shows in that is something approaching Christ, because Christ says, give up everything says to the man, and the man goes away sad. Give up everything, follow me, give to the poor, renounce yourself, take up your cross. Um, he, Achilles is not quite there, um, but he's close. So in the Iliad we get this sense of an intrinsic honor that's going to co cost nothing less than everything for a man to become who, he, who he's going to be. <laughs> That paradox gets as close to Christianity before Christianity comes that I know of. Odysseus does the same thing. Um, I mean, or in a similar way. Are you here? Just, I don't. I'm not asleep. I know, I know, I know. Um, Odysseus does the same thing. I mean, he has to enter into a world of the irrational to learn all these things before he can come back. Um, and what we learn when he, I think, when, when he defeats all the suitors is, in his war against the suitors, he's answering every unlawful, unlawful emotion 
that's created by a woman. I mean, whatever attractions they have for Penelope, and they're, they're multiple. I mean, you look at the numbers of the suitors. So his coming home represents um, his having to learn to see those things in the world and in himself and answer them. And it's only then that he can be the husband that he's capable of being. So the marriage that exists between Penelope and Odysseus shows two, two people who are, who are in their different ways more complete as human beings in their marriage than Nestor is with his wife or Menelaus is in his. Because remember, Telemachus went to those two marriages in the beginning, and so we get Homer's treatment of two extremes of, of the way in which men live in their marriages. So we see um, a different view of marriage, that the cost of marriage is great, it's not easy, there's a, a real struggle, and in that it seems to me we, we see another instance of man approaching what Christ will ask. And you know that so many of the great images that defines Christ's mission here on earth is spousal, marriage, the bridegroom with his church. Um, it, it looks at Christ as the, the husband, the groom. The whole Bible, the Gospel, the Revelation ends with the groom calling to his church, saying, come, come. So that spousal relationship, that, mar that relationship of marriage is central to what Christ does with his church. We get images of that in um, the Odyssey. In the Aeneid, Virgil takes that whole um, Homeric world and radically transforms it. What he does is show that um, there's nothing good that man can do that doesn't involve an element of self-sacrifice. Um, the city that he's going to bring into being is one that's, um, this goes to Fred's, partly to Fred's comment in his questions about there's a plan to things. That Rome was called into being because it was an expression of something God was doing in the world. Aeneas has to make sacrifices at every point to do that. Um, I'm just going to name one at the end because we've been doing it at Seton and I just, I'm so taken by it, but it, it sort of exemplifies everything. He has to give up his wife, he loses his father, he loses his men, um, he loses his nurse, the pilot of his ships. Um, it's not as if those people deserve punishment or dying, they were all good. That's the cost of self-sacrifice. That's exactly what Christ said. Unless you give up everything, unless you give up everything even your family, you can't do what he's asking us to do. Um, late in the, in the Aeneid, when um, Aeneas is fighting men, Mezentius, if you remember, is this evil, evil king, barbaric, and his people were so disgusted by what he, what he did is they finally exiled him. Exiled him. Aeneas is in a war with Mezentius and Turnus and all these other people who are allied with each other to defeat him, to get this foreign guy out of there. Um, so what we're watching are all these racial tensions, these racial divisions. He's not of that race. They want to get rid of him. They don't know that he's actually coming home. Because Virgil's going back to a prehistoric time when all men were together in that ancient forest of Saturn. So that people were divided by their races, but racial divisions, ethnic divisions are tearing Italy apart. It's so, it's so relevant to what's going on today. Aeneas has to overcome all of those if this city is to be a city 
in which all people, regardless of their race or sex or ethnic background, are to come together. In this battle, he's fighting Mezentius. Mezentius gets wounded, and his son Lausus comes to defend his father. His father is a brutal man, absolutely brutal man. His son comes to defend him, and Aeneas has to engage this young boy in a fight and kills him. He does not want to do that. He does not want to kill this kid. Um, I, I think of Veer when I think about it. He does not want to do this. He has to kill the kid. When he kills him, he almost weeps. He looks at the boy and he sees nothing but good in this young kid. The talent, the ability. Now think about how far we are from Achilles in the Iliad after his turn. Did Achilles ever feel any sorrow for any man he killed, even after his turn? Not close. Not close. Aeneas doesn't want to do it, but has to do it. He kills the boy and then, in a tender tone, acknowledges the honor of this kid, the beauty, the promise. Um, he, has, he sees nothing but good in this fallen soldier. And then he gets angry at the enemy for not picking this kid up. For a moment, he tells everybody to quiet and, and scolds the enemy and says, pick this boy up and give him the honor due to him. That's in the middle of a battle in rage. Could Achilles have ever done that? Could Odysseus have ever... Do we ever see anything like that in the Greek world? Where in dealing with an enemy, your sorrow for the loss um, is greater than your sense of victory in what you're accomplishing. So it's only one more way in which we see the pagan world moving toward Christianity just before Christ came. I've said this before, and I'm more and more convinced of it the, the older I get. I, there's no way Virgil could have done this. None if he had not read um, Isaiah in the Old Testament. People wandering, trying to settle a home. We don't see Rome come into existence. It, it won't for a long time. Because in Virgil, he knows that no matter how great the city is, no matter how great men's accomplishments, there will always be something more. That we would be lacking in what we do. And he writes that just before Christ. So just keep in mind this ancient world. So this is, this is a world that these poets are writing about these things before Christ comes because they're seeing something in the nature of man. Just the nature of man, what he's doing, who he is, his end, what he longs for, what he strives for, um, the faults, that, he, the faults that, that get in the way of what he's trying to do. These are all pagans. They're before Christ. And yet, in their sense of this nature around us that we're a part of, and in their sense of our own nature, what we carry in us, the aspirations that we have, the good things that we have, the bad things that are in the way, it's amazing that they could have seen all this pointing to Christ um, before he came. So I want to stop with that, and what I'd like to do is focus on three three of the questions, and um, I think I'd like to start with the one that Fred asked, but let me let me just mention them. And if you have if you haven't read them, I'd like you to, you know, tonight, tomorrow, whenever you have. Um, on our handout, um, 
the, on the first page, Fred raised this question about this relationship between justice and mercy. And he referred to Portia. Um, we see how skillfully Portia manages this in Merchant of Venice, that she is able to reconcile justice and mercy as she does. How masterfully Melville shows us the difficulty in finding the balance with Billy and Vare, um, per Perdita and Wintersdale. What do we make of the difficulty in finding this balance as we've witnessed it in multiple works? Christ demonstrated mercy and justice in his ministry. Why are we so bad at it? Pondering this takes us to the next content. Um, I, let me let me just offer a couple of thoughts. I I raise questions about looking at at um, justice and mercy as a balance because I I mean I think most of our ordinary notions about justice is that it's a balance. Um, in distributive justice, if somebody's taken from us, we have to weigh it. Somebody takes a life. It's if it's a criminal act, we have to see the implications and weigh it so that the image of a justice is really appropriate. Can we talk about a divine love being offered to our efforts to be just to that? Is that, that notion of balance sufficient? Um, I, I want to, I wanna, uh, you've already got the note, so rather than go to it, I, I want to just add a, a thought and then refer to the other two and then go wherever you want. But I want to offer this thought. Um, I love Merchant of Venice, you guys know that, um, but I love Winter's Tale more, far more. I think Portia is an extraordinary image of um, an extraordinary woman, what she does with justice, you know, we've gone through the play. She has to reconcile what Shylock wants according to the law and what the Christians want, and what we see is the Jew is going to be legalistic to his own advantage in claiming what he wants. He wants a pound of flesh. He wants his money back. He wants vengeance. And the, and the Christians want mercy. They say, let him off. And so we've got two conflicting ideas here. The law means one thing, hold somebody strictly accountable. The other, and the other, this is really important. To the Christians, mercy means letting him go, let him off. Is that what mercy is? Now hold on, don't, don't, Give me a minute here, because I don't want to. I don't want an answer. What I want to do is present a couple of issues here. I think that's a wonderful play, but that play reminds me of Pride and Prejudice in Jane Austen's work. When I said it against Manfield Park, Pride and Prejudice is too light. Jane Austen acknowledged that it's just too light. When you look at what Portia did abstractly, it's a wonderful play. Um, but when you look at the mercy that, I mean, what is presented as a mercy, it's really, question, in my mind, it's questionable whether it is. I, abstractly, it, it's a great gift. She has Shylock, because his intent was to kill Antonio. She knows that. So he owes his life. Shylock has to give his money up to his family, to um, his daughter, and he has to convert. Um, no Jew would say that's an act of mercy. Although we may say it, I mean, some may, I'm not going to argue, and I don't want to argue that right now. But here's where I'm going. Um, abstractly, that's, that's abstractly considered, that's a wonderful image of reconciling justice and mercy. Um, what it lacks, in my mind, in my reading, I mean, going to Fred, your comment about, is what you see when you put works together. When I read 
Winter's Tale, I see Shakespeare moving out of out of realm of abstraction into a reality of concrete sufferings that that shows he's gone way beyond Merchant of Venice later in his life. You you remember the play? Um, Leontes accused his wife of infidelity and puts her in the tower, and the son will die and. Um, he will send his daughter off because he claims it's not hers. Um, so to the court, she's dead. Antigonus, um, Paulina's husband, takes Perdita. He dies. The ship's crew dies. When and when Leontes sends to the oracle, the oracle comes back and says, "Leontes is a tyrant. He's wrong. And that which will that which is lost will not be found until that which is lost." No. There will be no heir. There will be no heir until that which is lost is found. Perdita means remembering, if I remember correctly. Um, she comes back, you know, ultimately they're reconciled. But here's where I want to go. The two women in that play, to me, who are among the most extraordinary women in all of Shakespeare's canon, are Paulina and Hermione. Paulina, lots of people see Paulina as a scourge. She's a... You know, she's ready to scratch out men's eyes. I, I think I think she's extraordinary. And Hermione is going to suffer. Paulina lost her husband. Her husband, Antigonus, was asked to take the baby away. When he drops the baby off, remember in uh, Bohemia, a bear eats him and the ship goes down in a storm. He's dead. Paulina's lost her husband. If ever a woman had a reason for getting angry at a man, it would be Paulina. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't take that anger out on him. What she does is make him promise that he will not marry until she gives him permission. It seems like an arm. The men are not going to like that. They don't like it. Because you know that if... Leontes doesn't have an heir, the kingdom doesn't go on. So all the men are saying, Mary, Mary, Mary. It's exactly what the men would have told Henry VIII. Exactly. You have, to, you have to have a male heir. Paulina says, promise, he will not marry until I say. She's lost her, this man killed her husband. Hermione has lost her son. So for 16 years, those two women endure a long suffering. Um, Aeneas, when he kills Lausus, he has to kill this boy that he doesn't want to kill. Deer has to execute Billy Bud. He does not want to do it. Bud says to Veer, God bless Captain, he says that of his captain. Um, Veer has made it clear he doesn't want to do this, he has to do it. There's people who have to endure these awful things um, dealing with justices and injustices, okay? So one of the questions is, how do we look at this relationship between justice and mercy? Does mercy mean letting a person off? Because the image for us, according to our faith, is Christ in the act of dying. Is that... Is that not a severe mercy? Does mercy mean letting a guy off? How do we reconcile these two things and why, why are they so hard for us? That's the first question. Hold on now, don't answer. The second one was... The reflection? Self-reflection and teachers and students. Oh yeah. The other one had to do with this question of 
reflection, how important self-reflection. It's too long to go in here, but I'm, I'm hoping you will read it. But but you remember the, the it's on page four and five of our our too long sheet. <laughs> it's on page four or five of this really long. And remember that that literature is making us aware of something, so that we we enter into experiences on two levels. We enter this other world. We enter our own, and through it, we're helped to reflect on ourselves, to detach ourselves. How important is this act of self-detachment? Odysseus has to tell his stories. In the telling of that story, he detaches himself from himself. He's himself and looking at himself. That's a extraordinary sort of. It's like being like God, in and out at the same time. How important is that? That particularly in the sense that literature takes us into a world of our own, makes us aware of it at the same time, so that we're involved in it and detached from it at the same time. And how, is it, how important is it for not only helping us to understand ourselves in our world, but how important is it for us to enter into what I've been calling, what traditionally has been called the apophatic, to learn to see by what's not there. And you remember from your reading of, um, of um, Eliot, there and not there, always and everywhere, England and nowhere. And I've raised that question again and again. When we take the Eucharist and we're out in the parking lot on our way home, where are we? Where are we? The Eucharist places us in God's kingdom. Um, we go home. We're in our world. In what ways does literature help us to see things differently? Can you look at certain works? Can you see that? Portia, Mink, Leontes, Paulina, any of them any of them. So the second question is um, um, the importance of learning to see ourselves in ways that help us detach ourselves from ourselves so that we can act differently in the world. It's like we're not so bound to ourselves and what we do. And the third one, this is at Suzanne's urging, I think it's good, um, on page six, I've, I've, and it goes, to, I think it goes to both of these other questions, the first two questions. The wisdom of the gods. Why aren't the gods coming in to help us? You know, in the Odyssey, uh, Athena's with Telemachus, the greater part of his journey. And that wonderful comic scene when, when Telemachus is with Nestor, and he's describing the horrible situation he's facing in his home, how bad things are. Nestor goes, oh, if only Athena were here to protect you the way she did Odysseus. <laughs> Athena's right next to Telemachus. Why doesn't she come out and say, here I am, idiot? Um, why didn't, why, when, at the beginning of the Iliad, when a, um, Achilles starts to draw his court, um, sword, Athena says to him, stop, I will help you recover your honor. Why doesn't she do it then? Um... Why do the gods not come in um, more, more readily than they do? Christ has already saved us. He's called us. Um, why doesn't he come to us more often? What's the wisdom of this? Can you add something to that, Doc? I know. Um, so there's several questions there that I think worth, are worth, but those are the three that 
the you know the the, the tutoring is crucial. But those three, um, how do we look at the relationship between justice and mercy? What, what, how do we understand mercy? What does it add to justice beyond the pagan world? Um, does mercy mean letting somebody off? The second is the importance of learning to step outside of ourselves, that poetry takes us back to the world, to enter it, to get involved in it, but step away from it at the same time. What do we learn about seeing ourselves? Can we see that in characters? Um, um, Ike, Billy Budd, um, Ishmael, you know, we can go on and on, Mink, in anybody, Othello. How important is is seeing ourselves and how does poetry help with that? And having seen that, how, how are we to bring it to the world? I mean, to go to, to, to Fred's. And the last one is this wisdom of the gods. Why, why do they let us suffer? So, why, why do good people have to suffer? Why do they let, why don't they jump in sooner than we do, they do? So let me stop. Those are the three. Fred, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, I'd be glad to go to the first one because I, I just think this whole question of justice and mercy, as you put it, is really profound. But I'm glad to go to anybody. Barbara, if you want to jump in ahead of him, I'm sure he'd be glad. I'd be glad to see you jump in. Any of you. Um, they're all... I mean, we've, we've had some pretty profound work, so you guys jump in. What would you... Barbara, go ahead. Are you saying... Sorry, your audio's not on. Your audio's not on. Can you turn your audio on? Is it on now? Yes, yes. yes. Wait. Okay. So, I have a... My particular feeling about justice is there really isn't any. When someone takes something away, for instance, a life, there is no way. The only answer to getting justice is mercy, which is, I'm thinking that my father-in-law was murdered in his home. And... Even if they had figured out who did it, I am not of a mind that putting him in jail forever or taking his life would have fixed anything except it would have kept him from murdering somebody else. So for me, justice isn't getting even, it is letting go and I don't know how I don't know I have never discussed that with anybody else so I don't know if that's something anybody else feels or not or if it's just because of my particular um, history I'm glad for anybody to respond but before they do Barbara I just got you you said you couldn't see any good in, unless it would prevent him from killing again but if the if a man has crossed that line once, I mean, there's good reason to wonder whether you're doing well, it. Isn't that isn't that in itself a good reason for um, for acting 
according to what the world says justly by asking him to do something for the sake of other people? But I don't consider that justice because it does not, it doesn't give me back the time or my father-in-law. It only keeps him from taking from someone else. So justice is a, is kind of a personal um, return of what's been taken. Yeah. And, and you can't, nothing can return that. One of the interesting comments that Aristotle makes in the Ethics about justice, when he looks at the four natural virtues, um, temperance, prudence, prudence. Um, temperance, prudence, endurance, or courage, and justice, he says that justice is the highest virtue um, because it's the one virtue in which you call into play all those other virtues and because they involve so many more people. So it's not just one other person that's involved, let's say, in a killing. Because even, even though the people who are immediately involved with the death of somebody are going to be hurt by it, it's also other people. A whole large um, community is going to be affected by that murder. It's not just personal. I mean, let me enlarge the situation. If you kill a president, it's not just going to be the family members who are going to be concerned with justice because they've lost somebody. It's going to be a whole people. So when anybody takes the life of another person, it's not just the people who are immediately involved who are served by a justice, it's everybody else. Because if you let that murder go, you could indirectly be condoning other murders or giving a permission to kill other people. Everybody's going to be affected. So justice is the one virtue that's different and more perfect than the other because it involves so many other people. And so when I think of it just as a very personal thing, I'm not getting the whole picture. And, and that's another reason why studying literature or studying other people, because as I said, I never, I have not ever spoken to anybody, to anybody about how I felt. Well, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad you did that. Really glad you did that. Glad you did that. Anybody else? Fred, I'm sorry. I appreciate that. Sir, yeah. Fred, I'm eager to hear. I mean, I, I know it's one of your greater concerns. I mean, it was a really important one in your list. You, you want to jump in here? What are you, some of the questions you have about justice and mercy? And, and let, me, let me try to focus it to, so it's just not personal. Taking that as an interest and in your, your concern is, is there a thread, a common thread running through works, you know? So we're not just dealing abstractly with justice the way, say, Aristotle would, but you're looking at it through these works that we've been reading. So uh, what, have, what have you taken away on this? I, I personally, I, and, and I think Francis does too, you can see that, that challenge of balancing, or, and, and balances probably not the right word. I guess Portia talks about the mean, but that, you know, where is where is where is the right scale on on imparting justice and at the same time expressing what Christ said in terms of love or, or mercy. Right. And I I see it today in spades, maybe it's just me, but I mean 
look at look at Amy and the and the Supreme Court nomination today. God, I mean, it's it's just she's a brilliant woman. She's got you know more qualifications than probably most people out there, and yet you look at what she's going under and and and, and dealing with, and you, you kind of look at that and say, okay, well. Well, where's the justice in that? Is you know, where's the mercy in that? And I just, I personally, I see it prevalent through a lot of the literature that we've read, a lot of the short stories that we've done. And and the question is, well, how do how how do we deal with that? You know, how do we how do we come to grips with that? And you know, what do we learn from it? And how can we be you know better at it? I mean, I. You know, and I, at the at the risk of exposing more of my personal feelings that I probably should, I am I am incensed that someone as qualified and capable as she is, yep. it's undergoing what's yep. what's happening yep. today. And you know, the reality is, there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. You know, it, it's no, that's not true. So you, you can well, you you can I write can you can write. But that's about it. Yeah, the book. So anyway, to, to answer your question, and I, pray. I, I see that yeah. all the way through the literature myself. And and the question is, do we can we glean something from what we've learned from that exercise and from our own sharing over the years that helps us deal with that better? Let me let me if I can candy who is that candy from old uh, there's a hand up and I didn't even know what that hand means. Candy, is that you? Candy Cobar. Is it? Candy Cobar. Candy, is that you? Can you unmute yourself and... Is that you? Uh, maybe. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. Well, wow. <laughs> good to hear your voice. I just thought I'd, like, listen in, see what you guys are up to. No, no way. <laughs> no, nobody's going to be in this class to listen in. You either come forward and contribute or there's the door. Okay. <laughs> Let's ask Candy the question. Wait, no, I don't. Harold, no, no. I want to. I want to. I want to come back to Fred. If you guys, uh, don't put me on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot if I can. Um, let me. Let me go back to Fred's response, Candy, for a second. Can all of us take time for a few minutes? I, I really want to take this up. Fred's asking, "What do we do?" And it's it's a good question. I want to go back to something prior to that. What is mercy? How is mercy different from justice? Aristotle is really wait. Let me just Aristotle is really clear. What Portia refers to the mean, she's going straight to Aristotle in the way that I've tried explaining it. It's a balancing, a proportion. Um, so if somebody takes fifty thousand dollars from you, say, but let's say that guy's poor. I mean, go back to Barbara's. I believe justice is absent. I think what Fred's talking about it outrages me. I mean, I, I had to turn off the TV in absolute anger last week when I was watching what's going on around the nominations, it just, it infuriates me. It, it's, it, it's so upsetting to see us not giving justice its place, Barbara. We take away justice, we're gone. That violence is growing day by day, and a horrible injustice is being done to this woman. Horrible. According to Aristotle, if somebody takes $50,000, let's say it's a poor guy. So how do you, how do you distribute the justice to, to have him pay it when he can't. So justice for him involves a balancing, a proportion, 
You know, if you kill your next door, next door neighbor, is it the same thing as killing a president? Obviously not. The consequences are different. So it's important to us to recover a sense of justice. And I don't think our, I mean, one answer to the Fred, we're not going to recover ourselves if we don't. And one of the problems is most of the kids who are educated today have gone through Marxist indoctrinations. They don't have a sense of justice anymore. They've lost it. But here's, for me, the more important question. Can we take a few minutes and deal with this? What is mercy? Does mercy mean letting a guy off? Does mercy ever... So, is, is, are we to understand that Veer is... So, there, somebody can say, Billy Budd is showing, expressing a sense of mercy when he says to the man who's responsible for his death, God bless you. God bless Captain Veer. I think it's easy to say, we can see a spirit of mercy. Can, is, can we not say that of Veer? Is there no mercy in him when he has to take this young boy's life? Um, if we look at Aeneas when he's doing something, if we look at Christ in the act of eye, if we look at um, Psyche when she's taking the bull to the underworld, I mean, go anywhere you want. What is mercy? Does mercy mean letting somebody go? And, and more importantly, can we ever perform an act of mercy as it's come to us through Christ without an act of completely giving ourselves up? Completely. So I want to go back to Veer. Um, is it possible? Or, can, or here, Amy. Let's say she becomes a judge. Are we to suppose that when she makes a conviction like Veer, knowing something's wrong, that there's no mercy in her soul. If mercy means giving oneself up in whatever one does, does that mean that it completely lets the person off? What is mercy? I, I, we're not going to be able to talk about how to reconcile justice with mercy if we don't have some understanding of mercy and take it to concrete cases. So you guys go wherever you want to in the literature, but my question right now is, what is mercy? And to Fred's question, why is it so hard? Fred, I see a hand up. What is that on your... Well, I, I don't think mercy means you just forgive somebody and, and forget what's been done. Let, let's just take Amy, for example. To me, mercy would be letting people speak their mind, listening objectively to what somebody is and you may not you may not change your mind on what you believe, but what we what we've lost is the willingness to listen to somebody else's opinion and factor it into what we believe to see if maybe there's something else that we should take into consideration. That just makes to me, there's a, I'm either over here or I'm over here, and there is no way on God's green earth that I'm ever going to change my position regardless of what you say, so therefore, I don't even need to listen to you, because I've already decided that whatever you have to say is irrelevant. So, mercy, in a, in a broad sense for me, is just be willing to say that, you know what, I don't know everything, 
I'm not God, you might actually have something meaningful to say that might be worth listening to. And to me, in, in today's world, it seems like we've just lost that completely for the most part. Yeah. Fred, would you have any trouble with my saying, there's two hands up, by the way. I think it's an option if you hit the hand, it puts a hand up here like somebody's raising a hand, I guess. Um, Candy, you've got a hand up. If, if you have something to say, or, and Fred, you've got a hand up. But Fred, would you would you have any difficulty with my saying, it, would it be okay, can I rephrase that to say, because I want to, I'm trying to get to a definition of mercy, so we can, where, whatever the circumstances, we can see it. In your, in your example, would, would you have trouble with, with my saying that what you're describing is somebody completely giving up themselves in that moment to hear another person so that even though it's not a cross or that inwardly there's a kind of cross because you're denying yourself enough for a moment to be open to hear what somebody else has to say. I'm trying to get to a definition. No, I think that's good. So that whatever, it can be small, it can be large, it can be a cross, it can be a discussion. I mean, go to Amy, go to yourself. That because I'm trying right now. I don't. I don't know how we're going to reconcile this. Your question about justice and mercy. If we don't come to a good understanding of what mercy really is. Ken um, or Jolie, go ahead. I was going to say the um, the full natural consequences are still present, but the attitude with which the natural consequences are allowed to be experienced is one of still welcome and goodwill and perhaps open. There's something at mercy that wants to go beyond the... Here, let me try to enlarge this if I can for a second. In, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the pagan world, there was always a sense that there was some transcendent element to man. So injustice, an eye for an eye in the Jewish law was never enough. An eye for an eye means you're going to exact judgment. In the pagan world, they would have invoked magnanimity, large-hearted, that you wouldn't just reduce it to an eye for an eye, just the law. So magnanimity approaches mercy, but it seems to me there's a difference after what Christ does. And that is that we don't do away with the law. We don't do away with justice. Christ does, himself doesn't do that. There's nothing he does that isn't in fulfillment of his father's law. Not of the ritual laws of the Jews, but his father's law. There's nothing he does that isn't in obedience to law. But what he does is he, 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 he offers his own life and asks us to follow it, to be willing to give up our own lives in order to um, go beyond justice. Um, what's the word? To pardon, to, um, to forgive, so that it, it doesn't mean letting the criminal off, letting the child off, or whoever it is. It does mean that you don't hold somebody strictly accountable to the law 
but to something better. And the only way you're going to get to that is by denying yourself. And that, that can be costly. It can mean being patient in a discussion. It can, be being, can mean being patient in an argument. It can mean your life. I mean, all the saints put themselves in a position of, um, of being martyred, or, or lots of them did. So, but it seems to me what's at the center of it is our care for another human being can't be reduced to a law. That we've got to be obedient to the law and still go beyond with Christ to help to achieve the good of that other person. We don't see that with Achilles and Odysseus, except in part. We see it in a greater measure in Aeneas. Um, we see it full-bodied in Christ in Dante. I, I personally think it's there in Lear, it's there in Psyche, it's, um, you know, it's in, in other people, but, um, but I think the danger was made clear in Merchant of Venice because the danger is we can go to one side or the other and avoid the cross that means we we uphold justice but we um, we want to bring a pardon to a person to help that person get beyond the law because the law will never answer something transcendent in our character only Christ's love will um, and, I, and I think my answer to Fred, your question is, I think one of the reasons it's so hard is because we, it's, it's hard to get past our own selfishness, our own pride, what we don't want to give up, what we don't want to lose. Um, but anyway, go, Fred, go ahead. Did you have something? You go ahead. Fred, I can't hear you. Can you un... I, I just wonder if the answer to your question might be that Mercy is the recognition that there's a difference between man's law and God's law. And willing to recognize the fact that man's law specifically may not always be sufficient to deal with a particular situation. And that we always have to recognize that man's law, because it's relative and it's ephemeral, that it may not always be absolute and that God's law really is the only thing that is truly absolute and if man's law ever is in direct conflict with God's law then we need to step back and take another look yeah I, I think it's true and I think what makes this problem so much harder in our world and I'm, you've heard me say this but I'm I'm glad to reinforce it I hope this is a reinforcement up until the modern world what one of the great battles during the Middle Ages was between nominalism and universalism. Nominalism says only particular things are real. There are no universals. The modern mind is nominalistic in that way. It, it cannot see that. The danger is that if you, if you endorse nominalism, you take away the Trinity. There's no universal, there's nothing universal there. There's only particular things. Up until the Middle Ages, everybody understood, I mean people who thought about these things. It's not true today. I mean, thinkers think they think today, and I don't think they do. Amy's going to have, Amy knows this. She, she's Catholic. She cannot know, and she's a lawyer. She's a lawyer. Up until Dante, the understanding was that there was not this division between 
natural law and God's law. And if you, if you ever do anything to take that away, you lose the ground for acting at all. The Protestant world took it away. The modern secular progressive world took it away. Let me give me a minute to try to make this clear. All law, natural law, should be good and enforced because its ultimate source is God. So according to Dante, you've got natural law, positive laws, the laws that are written. So you've got positive laws, the laws that are in the book. Abortion's okay. No Catholic would understand it because he knows natural law would say all life is good. You can't take life or whatever, you know, whatever other laws. In pre-Christian times, in the one play of Sophocles that we're not going to read called um, Antigone, she, she quarrels with the king because she... So two of her brothers, two of Odysseus' sons, go to battle and kill each other. Not Odysseus. Or, or uh, Oedipus. And because they, one of them, or one of her brothers, resists the king, the king won't let him be buried within city grounds. And her appeal is, that's a universal law, it's eternal with the gods. She's pre-Christian. She's acknowledging the relationship between natural law and divine law. And so on the basis of that, she opposes the king. So if you take away natural law, you take away your basis for doing away with bad laws. The, the people who are supporting pro-life today are doing it on the basis of a connection between natural law and divine law, or they wouldn't be doing that. The people who have argued in favor of abortion have been doing it by an unnatural law, a law that's separated from God's law, or people wouldn't resist it. So up until modern times, nobody would ever say there's a difference between God's law and all law should be rooted in God, natural law, natural positive law on the books, natural law, it's there in nature. We've got it written into our Constitution. All people are created equal. That's a natural law statement in our Constitution. Natural law has its ties to divine law. It's in Scripture. And that divine law has its ultimate source in the rationality of God, the justice of God. The problem with the modern world is that it denies all that. All This goes back to Plato in the Republic. All law is a product of those who are in power. Get power and you make whatever laws you want. One of the, I mean, one of the reasons my heart leapt, I mean, the, in the week before Trump nominated her, my prayers would be that she'd be nominated because you know, whatever decision she makes as a justice is going to be based on her understanding of natural law as it relates to God, even if she doesn't say that. That's not her job. I well, hold, hold, well, hold, wait. Let me finish, Mark, and you can come. She knows. Yeah. She she knows. She knows that she'll never. She knows. She'll never be able to make a decision fairly if she doesn't understand natural law. The decisions that I've seen her make, even her questions about row 8 or other things, show she's weighing things to see, you know, are there arguments here or there. She's not going to make a decision based on arbitrary law. She's going to be, she's going to be basing it on her understanding of what natural law is. And Kavanaugh's the same way. We've got two people in, in the courts who are not going to be and go along with what everybody else and and the, the, the important point here I mean to make it short is everybody else objects to them because they think law is what they think it is 
you know, the, so they see these two people as enemies. Anyway, sorry, Mark, go ahead. It'll be interesting to see if she makes it. I think she will. I don't necessarily have a problem with her being nominated, and hopefully she'll make a good Supreme Court justice. But the job of a justice in the United States of America is to interpret the laws written for this country, not God's law. Okay, just, just yes. Hold, hold on. And, and there is no discussion about what her job is on that. Yeah. Just, because there's a sorry. lot of people who don't believe in God. Right. It, all around the world. Right. Right, not just here. Yeah. So the natural law versus that, you've you got to be careful with. I mean, that's my opinion. <laughs> just I, I would just add to that. Yes, 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 yes to all you're saying. But remember also, God is, hold on, God is written into our founding documents everywhere. In God we trust. The, the declaration is uh, under God. Um, by Protestants, by the way. God, God <laughs> Wait a minute, you just wanted to take him out because it was a universal thing, and now you want to make a Mark, get straight. You, hold on, I'm just responding to what you said a minute ago. Hold on, my friend. You just wanted God out of it, and I'm like because there are constitutional documents, and I'm agreeing with you. I'm just reminding you that God is in our constitutional document. As a matter of fact, one of the most important amendments in our constitutional documents is freedom of religion. They're respecting God, so don't leave God out of whatever your arguments well, are. That's all. Separation of church and state. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, yes. 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 Good moral, God-fearing people. But yes. They they were all Protestants, so. Yeah. <laughs> let me let me just just remind you just remind you, of, I, hopefully you'll keep your emphasis while I'm trying to put it anyway to to so we are together here. My claim was that Amy will be the reason she's hated right now. The reason is I mean people have got prejudices about Catholic. That's a large part of it. But one of one of the reasons she's chosen for this job is. She will make her her judgments based on her understanding of natural law. She's qualified to see the difference between law as a convention and law as it's rooted in nature. If you go back to our founding documents, the God of nature, I, I'm not going to dismiss this because what they're doing is trying to get beyond religious differences to a fundamental principle. Our founding documents are one God, under nature, these things are true, inalienable. We have these rights because of him. That's natural law thinking. Amy knows that. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to go to partisan religion here. She knows the difference between laws that are conventional, that are expressions of power or ideologies, and natural law. And so did the founders of our Constitution. Um... What, Doc? Oh, sorry. Um, what I like how you connected it to the literature, just the, go ahead. No, knowing the natural law. Sorry? I like the way you connected her um, outlook and her knowing natural law and conventional law to, to the literature. Okay. Good question, Joe. I'm really glad you asked. Before we go there, in because I, I, we're about out of time. Anybody, I want to answer, try to give a short response to Jody's question. In, I, but she said, I want to see the difference or how you relate it to literature. Any other thoughts about Marissi before? 
I just try to take a second with Jolie's question? Well, I think that... I was kind of thinking... Go ahead. Go ahead, Candy, go I was, ahead. I was just going to say that there, there's a word that wasn't brought up that I think is real important as far as mercy goes, and that's compassion. Compassion is basically putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to understand what they're going through. And there, and if you look at just Jesus himself, he felt compassion because he was put in the, in the, in the shoes of a human being. He suffered ridicule, all kinds of things. So he understands the human, the human condition. It doesn't mean that he's going to say, well, okay, I get you, so you can kill somebody this time. But he understands it, so he looks at the condition and he has compassion. And I, I, we don't have any <coughs> compassion in this world today. <clears throat> Strange things are happening without any remorse, and nobody, everybody's on their own thing, which goes back to you're mentioning the selfishness in the world. So well, it's just not on the news. Um, all the compassion is not on the news, but it's out there. Yeah. One of the one, yeah one of the difficulties is I mean to go back to the same problem we're struggling with is compassion by itself won't answer these problems the the difficulty still is how do you bring justice and compassion together because if you just have compassion without justice you're gonna have chaos right. so it's a really troubling here let me because we're out of time Jolie if I can just offer this let me see if I, can anybody help me with Jolie. You're asking where we find an example of Nobody natural... Nobody can help you with Jolie, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I'm going to try, because I'm, I'm not going to... You can drop that in somebody else, not me. Here, hold on. So, natural law, um, it's, it's there with... Let me just say, it's... Hold on. So it's there in fear. It's there in murder the cathedral. It's there in Two We Have Faces. Um, it's there in all of Shakespeare plays um, where you're dealing with questions of justice and love. I, I'm just generally, I, I, I don't want to get to specifics because right now we don't have time, but um, it's implicit in the Iliad, uh, the Odyssey, all of them, that there's something in nature that men are bound to um, that, they, that they have to acknowledge, and when they don't, disorders follow, whether they're in the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid, you know, that they are probably more explicit anywhere than any work we've read in Dante. The whole division between hell, purgatory, and heaven implies a natural law. Or the people in hell wouldn't be there, and the people who in mercy who broke the same laws as those people in hell wouldn't be in purgatory. They're only there because they want something more than the law. But what they're doing, this is so crucial to your question, or your challenge, or whatever you want to call it. The people in mercy are not there because they were let go. They're there receiving a mercy, and every one of them is having to make up by conforming to the law in the penance they're taking on. They're answering a natural law. They ate too much. They were too greedy. They were too vengeful. They were whatever extreme. They did not conform to the law. The fraud, the way they, you know, the people in hell misused their minds. There's a natural law. Everybody in hell is there because they had violated. Everybody in purgatory is there wanting to obey the law or they wouldn't be doing the penance they're doing. What, by, against what are they measuring themselves to say, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done this, now I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. 
So natural law has been implicit in every work. It's absolutely explicit in Dante. Kavanaugh knows this. Um, Amy knows it as Catholics who are in law. There's no way they could have passed through a law program. If you look at professors coming through law programs that are not Catholic, that natural law tradition won't even be taught. I mean, lots of people will not even be made aware of it. So the natural law tradition has been present openly, you know, sort of implied in almost every work, or there would be no way of calling somebody to account for what he did. Othello, Oriol, Billy, you know. Um, let's stop, because we are, I made a promise that I would keep myself to time, and I'm not doing it very well tonight. Um, 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 I will, I will write, you a, I'll write you a note with the books that we'll pick up. Next week, let's pick this up. What I'd like to do is, is give a few more minutes to this question that Fred asked, because I think it's, I just think it's, it's one of the hardest things for all of us, I think, because of what I said. I, I just think it's hard to get past our own self to if, if mercy is what I said, that it, it's the efforts that we make for the good of another person, to, to forgive him, to pardon him, to, to help him become better, we can't do it without putting our, denying our emotions, compassion in some way. We, we have to, to be more concerned about the good of another, to fulfill justice and go beyond in, in some way to help that per person become pardoned. The whole aim of the church, the whole, here it is, the whole aim of our church is to call us to justice in order that we can be pardoned. People who think they don't sin, never need it. We can't get pardoned until we learn to see our sins and then move towards it. So the whole aim of the church is to pardon. Can we do that in our lives? To go to Fred's question, how do we do that in a world not only that doesn't recognize pardon anymore, it doesn't recognize justice. I mean, we've become a lawless people in an awful way. Anyway, let's pick this up, because I think it's a crucial question, and then I'd like to, to spend a little bit of time on the other two questions, and, and I'll send you a note on the poetry. Can we hear more from Barbara on that? How to... Ask Barbara. What's your question to Barbara? How to uh, make, make it where the other person... All your, your only endeavor is to go for the other person's good because there's not going to be a consequence that fits. Okay, the problem is that I think I skipped that part about um, mercy. I think I just let it go because I didn't want to go through the pain of being merciful, of trying to understand. Well, so now, look what you did. <laughs> now I have to figure out how to forgive somebody that I don't even know who it is. Yeah. So wow. I'll, I'll, if I come upon anything wonderful, I'll let you know. But I appreciate your listening. Lord, I had no idea we were going here. Neither did we. I, I just wanted. I was wanted, just so honored you would share that. Yeah, yeah. Me too, Barbara. I, I can't say enough. I mean, I'm laughing inside and what? I mean, I, laughing and actually more laughing. I hope you hear a mirth here. 
that I'm glad, I, here, you know me well enough, that I'm glad for this burden that you're carrying because I think it's a grace and I think you know that and bless your soul, honestly bless your soul. Okay, all I can see is a lot of work. <laughs> Thank you all. Well, I hope you hear that, I hope you hear, I'm assuming, I'm, maybe I'm speaking out of play, that I think most of us are struggling with the same work, so I'm hoping that we're all together on this. Um, okay, well, it's just that that murdering someone is such a big thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all of you. Candy was especially good. I don't know if you're, uh, yeah, it's especially good to know you're present again. I've, we've missed you, and I'm glad you're here. And Tracy, Fred, Mark, um, Carl, Ginny, it's good to see you, um, Jolie. You guys have a good week. Um, have a good week. Um, let's keep each other in prayers, can we? See you next week. Night.